I believe that what we're talking about today, although it's central to Christianity, it's the core of who we are as followers of Christ, it's probably the one topic that's most misunderstood and taught incorrectly. Let's just be frank. We're talking about grace today. Jesus says in Matthew 5, that you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And then he goes on and a couple verses later says, let your light shine above, uh, before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, we've been talking about this the last few weeks. This is our calling. This is who we are as a church. This is who we are to be as individuals. This is the purpose that God saves us, redeems us, makes us who we are. This is what we are all about. We are to be a people bringing glory to God in the way we live our lives. And my question for you this morning is, are you in? Are you in? Is that what you want? Because if that's what you want, that's what God intends to do. I hope you're in with me. I have seen my, I frame my whole life with this one phrase, represent him well. I want people to see Jesus in me. I don't care if they see Mark Davis. I, I care nothing for myself. I want them to see his glory in me. It's Christ in, in me, the hope of glory. We need to see our lives framed by this one thing. He wants me to live in such a way that I bring him glory. Then that starts making all of our choices and decisions pretty easy, doesn't it? We've been looking at the book of Titus trying to learn from it how we go about doing church in a way that helps us as a church and as individuals best fulfill God's purpose for our life. So far, we've looked at three critical practices for the church, preaching, leadership, and teaching. And if you want to go back and listen to those messages, I wish that you would. I think they're good. I wish I had learned this stuff a long, long time ago. It would have made planting a new church a whole lot easier and more clearly defined for me. If we're serious about being a church that's like a city set on a hill, if we're serious about becoming a people who bring glory to God through the good works of our lives, these three things have to remain a priority. Preaching God's word, godly leadership, and teaching that helps people learn what it looks and feels like to live right. But can I be honest with you? That isn't the most important element in a good church. Those aren't the most important things to have in place for a church. Matter of fact, we could do all those things, we could have all those things in, in place, and we could practice those things faithfully, but if God isn't in it, all our efforts are going to come up empty. If God isn't in it, then everything we do will be fruitless. And in vain. As a matter of fact, that's what Psalm 127 says when it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So what does God do for us that makes all that we hope to do possible? What does God offer us that makes our feeble efforts worthwhile? I'll tell you what he does. He does grace. God gives us grace. God offers us his grace. And his grace is what we need most in order to do his will. It's God's grace that makes us a people who bring glory to him through our good works. It's his grace that's at work in us that brings to life the preaching and the teaching, that helps us follow the examples that he's placed before us. It's his grace that enables us to do all that. 
Without his grace, none of it works. His grace makes everything possible. Well, today in this passage of Titus that we're going to look at, Titus, uh, Paul deals with God's grace. It tells us what God's grace is. It tells us what God's grace does. And it tells us what we need to do to embrace God's grace, what we need to do to receive God's grace for ourselves so that his grace can have its work in us, have its way in our lives. So <laughs> I can't imagine, truthfully, cannot imagine a more important message this morning than this one. I hope that this clarifies in you how God intends to take you from where you are to where he wants to be. Here we go, let's read it. Starting at verse 11, chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly uh, passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for, whose, who, for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. That's a, that's a pretty strong verse right there, isn't it? Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You listening? Got your listening ears on? Let's pray. Father, I love you so much. And I thank you for this word. I thank you for its clarity. I thank you, Father, that you are here to work in us, to mold us, to shape us, to do what needs to be done here. These words in and of themselves won't do any good unless you're in them. And I pray in the name of Jesus that, Lord, you would have your way in us. That your Holy Spirit would strip away our pride, strip away the things that would prevent us from seeing and hearing this message today. Let your grace do its work in us. Let it change us, Lord. It's your grace that's changing us. And we thank you for your grace that's at work. We give you the glory and the praise, Lord. We want to see you lifted high in this, in this room. I pray that every eye would, would, would be on you today, focused on you, focused on your desires and your plan and your agenda. We love you. Open our ears. Open our eyes. Open our hearts to embrace this truth, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is grace? What is grace? Well, people define grace in all kinds of different ways, and I'm, I'm sure... If I were to ask you that question, some of you would pop out with some of these definitions. Some would say grace is God's unmerited favor. Some would say that grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. Some would say grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Have you heard all of those? Of course you have. Well, these definitions are good, and they're accurate, and they're helpful, but they tend to be a little bit abstract, a little bit theoretical, like it's, I hear you say that, but what does that mean? Titus 2.11 tells us God's grace isn't an abstraction, it's an act, it's an action. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It's not an abstraction, it's not a theory, it's not an idea, it's an action taken by God. It's an act. Grace isn't something that God simply thinks, that God simply feels, Grace is something God does. He acts. Titus 2.11 says God, uh, grace both appears 
And when it appears, it brings something priceless with it when it comes. Grace takes place, listen, grace takes place in an actual space-time event. How many of you have, grace has appeared to you? (laughs) And when grace appeared, Lord have mercy, it brought something priceless with it. Change. Peace. Joy. Grace is an act of God. It's an action. It's not something out there, it's something here, tangible, now. I can see it, I can feel it, I can know it. In verse 14, Paul connects God's grace to the appearance and action of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. In other words, folks, listen, grace has a face. Grace has a face. And that face is the face of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a scarred face. It's a bloody face. It's a face that agonized on the cross for your sake and for mine. This is the face that has appeared. And this is the face of the one who brings salvation for all of us. So here's a good working definition of grace, at least for our discussion today. Grace is the self-giving of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, for us. Grace is the self-giving. Think about that. Christ Jesus giving himself to us. Grace is the self-giving of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, for us. His face. His face is the face of grace. Galatians chapter 1 puts it this way. Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God our Father planned, in order to rescue us from the evil world in which we live. All glory to God forever and ever, and can I get an amen? Grace has a face, and that face looks just like Jesus. Verse 14 goes on to tell us what grace is like. It helps us define grace, and what grace is is like, what it's, I don't know, man, it, it, Well, y'all listen. I hope you get what I got out of this. I'm I'm like just mm, inside. Sorry. No, I'm not sorry. First of all, grace is powerful. It's powerful. The self-giving of Christ Jesus redeemed us from all lawlessness. The self-giving of Christ Jesus redeemed us from all lawlessness. Just like God redeemed Israel from Egyptian bondage with a mighty outstretched arm, Christ Jesus has redeemed us from the penalty and power of sin. Come on, man, if you've experienced that for yourself, can I get an amen? Come on, let me... You know what it feels like to be trapped in your sin, and then Jesus shows up, and all of a sudden... You know what I'm talking about. It's powerful. You went to rehab after rehab after rehab, and what'd you do? You went right back to it. Right back to it. But when Jesus showed up, what do I want that for? Why do I want to do that again? Why do I want to go back like a dog to its vomit? It's powerful, man. Some of y'all haven't experienced it yet. I know that. Some of you are, are thinking to yourself, is this real? And I am telling you, it is real. Can I get any? Yeah. 
you know it is. I'm not after the clapping. Really, I appreciate that. I I want you to clap for me. I want you to clap for Jesus when you clap. Because of what he's done in your life. It's powerful. It's powerful. His grace is what sets our captive souls free. That's exactly what Jesus himself said in John 8, 36, when he said, so if the Son sets you free, you are free. You don't have to go back. You know why you don't have to go back? Because you don't want to go back anymore. He set you free. Nothing else can do it. Nothing else can do it. Nothing else will do it. Only God's grace is powerful enough to set you free. And second, grace is purifying. It's purifying. Grace not only rescues us. It, not, it, it, doesn't just, it just doesn't just take us out of sin. Grace then begins to purify us. It begins to cleanse us. It washes us. It renews us. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify for himself a people. To purify for himself a people. 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I was just talking to someone earlier this morning who tells me as they have read the word of God and as the Holy Spirit has opened up the word of God to them, they find that some of the things in their life don't belong there anymore. And they, they, they started thinking, is God mad at me? And I'm saying, no, God's not mad at you. He is purifying you. Setting you apart, taking what shouldn't be away and creating you, stirring up in you a desire to do what he wants you to do. He's purifying you. His grace sets us free, but he doesn't just set us free. It would be, wouldn't it be? Let's go down to the animal shelter tomorrow. Let's buy a little puppy. Let's take him out of that cage. Let's walk him out the door. Let's put him down on the ground and say, hey, see ya. Would you do that? Do you think God would do that? No. You're going to take that puppy home. You're going to give him a good bath. Get all, <laughs> come on, get that stink off of him. You know what I'm talking about? That, that, that pet stink. Mm. This is what God, he's not going to just set you free and say, okay, so long, see you later. So that you just go right back out to it doing what you were doing before, or run out in the road and get run over by, you know, you you hear what I'm saying. He's going to purify. This is what grace does. It purifies us. His grace sets us free, and then it sets about purifying us from every trace of sin. Grace is possessive. You really need to hear this. I want you to hear this. We started using a phrase around here a long time ago when we were going through the book of Colossians. You're chosen, holy, which means set apart, and dearly loved. Grace is possessive. Christ, this verse tells us, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. For his own possession. Say that, say those four words. For his possession own possession. Now I want you to personalize it. I am his own possession. Say it with me. I am his own possession. You've got to get this. Grace is really possessive. You might even say that grace is jealous. 
When my wife and I confirmed our covenant of marriage, I suddenly became very possessive. And so did she. When she chose me and I chose her and we committed ourselves to one another till death do us part, we suddenly both became very possessive of one another. Because that's the way love works. God's grace is possessive. You might even say it's jealous. When his grace enters your life, it comes in to take over your life. Let's see. Who's, I'm sorry. I may not get through this message today. I'm, I'm telling you right now. I may not get through it, but I've got to, I've got to do this. All right, Teresa, you're single. Pretend I'm single, okay? Teresa, we go on a date. It's probably not. We're pretending here. This is not the way rumors get started, okay? But Teresa. And I look at Teresa and I say, Teresa, I want us to spend the rest of our lives together till death do us part. And she says, oh, yeah, that sounds really good. Let's do that. So we, I'm not that bad. A, am I that bad a choice? And then I say to her, but Teresa, here's the deal. You can have Sundays, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, but on Saturday, Tuesday, and Thursday, I get to do whatever I want to do, and you don't need to know what I'm doing. That doesn't even make sense. It doesn't compute. But we do that with Jesus, don't we? He sets us free. He cleans us up. He, he says, I am with you from now through eternity. But I tell you what, you tell me you only want to be with me on Sundays? That ain't going to work. I want you seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year for the rest of your eternal life. That's the problem. We approach Jesus as if he's some kind of part-time lover. That's not what grace is. Grace says, you're mine. You're mine. You're mine. Grace takes over. You get that? For his own possession. For his own possession. He's jealous over you. That's why he demands so much. Grace doesn't demand, does it? <laughs> we haven't gotten there yet. When grace comes into your life, it makes you its very own. Grace buys you, and then grace sets you apart for the glory of God. And that's ex you can see this all through the New Testament. A lot of people choose not to see these kinds of verses, but I'm pointing them out to you to let you know that you have to look at all the evidence before you come to your conclusions. And look at what 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says. You are not your own. You are not your own. Why? Because you are his own possession. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. That's grace demanding from you. 
everything, not just part. There's a teaching out there that grace kind of winks and nods at your sin and kind of lets it go and God turns, no, 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 no. And there are those of you in this room that know that for a fact. We'll get to this later. That grace is possessive because it's so costly. Grace is possessive because it's so costly. This costs God the life of his son. Don't dare treat his grace with impunity. There's one more thing I want you to know about grace. Grace is permanent. Grace is permanent. Grace isn't just a one-time deal that happens when you say a little prayer at the altar. Grace doesn't just appear and then disappear, only to appear again and then disappear. That's not the way grace works. Grace is ongoing. Remember, it's the self-giving of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace is ongoing. Yes, grace appeared in human history in the Son's death on the cross, but grace is always there for us until the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As long as we need grace, grace keeps flowing our way. It's a never-ending stream. It never runs dry. God's grace, he just continues to lavish on us to whatever degree or measure we need and then more besides. And that's why Paul could encourage Timothy by saying to him in 2 Timothy 2.1, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You need strength today to stay close to Christ. Believe you, me, God's grace is there for you. And, and, and that's why Paul could say to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 9.8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. Don't tell me you can't do it. Don't tell me you can't obey the Lord. Don't tell me you don't have the strength to walk this thing out. God's grace is more than enough to carry you through. More than enough to meet your need. More than enough to give you strength. More than enough to give you wisdom. Whatever you need, His grace is enough. It's powerful. Grace is so powerful. It's purifying. It's possessive. And it's permanent. Because grace is the self-giving. Do you think the love of Christ ever runs out? Do you think there is anything he would withhold from you? He gave his life for you on the cross. What more could he do to prove his love for you? To prove that his grace is always there. That's what grace is. The self-giving of Christ Jesus. It's powerful, purifying, possessive, and permanent. That brings us to the second question that this passage of Scripture helps us answer. What does grace do? What do, oh, It just winks at our sin. It, <laughs> what does grace really do? Let me tell you what grace does. When grace shows up in your life, it sets to work in your life. And the first thing it does is it sets about training you training you. That's what grace does. That's what this verse says. Grace trains us. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Let's get this putrid teaching out of our brain for just a moment. Grace doesn't come into our life flatter us with how good we are, pat us on the back, 
and say, get back to it, bud. God doesn't pat us on the back and say, well, that's a good boy, now just go back to the way you were. No, no. if you think that's what grace is, you've totally missed the point. Totally missed the point. And there's a lot of teaching out there right now that would tell you that's what grace is. That's what grace does. It pulls you from the, up from the pit and says, oh, a boy, don't step in that pit again. Nope. Let me tell you what grace does. It sets out to change everything about you. It changes the way you think. It changes what you want. It changes your behavior. It changes the way you live. Grace sets out to transform everything about you. It will not leave you the same. Grace trains us to turn away from godless living. Grace trains us to give up selfish and sinful pursuits. Grace trains us to give God his rightful place in our lives. Grace trains us to listen for his voice, to follow his leadership. Grace trains us, Matthew 6.33 says, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Even the very direction of our life turns from serving me to serving him. Everything about your life changes when grace shows up because it trains you to think God's way and not your own. Grace trains us in a whole new way of living. It trains us to live a life that's self-controlled. Anybody need a little self-control? If you've experienced grace, he's going to teach you how to live self-controlled. And probably going to do that by putting people around your life that are going to try to bring the force out in you. And you're going to learn to bite your tongue. Why? Because that's a good work. That's one of the good works that brings glory to God, to be able to stay silent when everything in you wants to scream. Right, Dar? It also, one of the good works is to learn, it will train you when to speak up when everything in you wants to shut down. Self-control. Give me self-control, Lord especially when I'm in traffic on Monday morning. You feel me? <laughs> Grace trains us to live a life that's self-controlled, that's upright, and that's devoted to God. It, Grace trains us how to best live this life in the here and now, not just waiting for the sweet by and by. That's what 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 reminds us. While physical training has some value, how many of you guys on the keto diet? On the keto, come on, you're trying to do your best. Pray for me. I'm working at it. Pray for me. It's good that you're doing that. Absolutely great that you're doing that. But when you die, do you think the keto diet's going to make a hill of beans worth of difference to your life? While physical training has some value, Look what he says, training and holy living is useful for everything. You want to make your marriage better? Let grace have its way in your life. You want to be a better employee or a better boss? Let grace have its way in your life. You want to be a better dad, a better mom? Let grace have its way in your life. Let it train you. Let it train you for the purposes that God intends for you. 
While physical training has some value, training in holy living is useful for everything. It has promise for this life and the life to come. That's what grace is all about. It's all about putting us into some rigorous training to turn us from what we were to make us what God wants us to be. And can I tell you something? That's not always pleasant. Training isn't always pleasant. As a matter of fact, the Greek word that's used for training refers to a parent training a child. How many of you got small toddlers? Anybody? You've raised kids. Then you're going to feel me when I start talking about this. Training a child often requires times of painful discipline, doesn't it? Well, sometimes our Heavenly Father exercises divine discipline to help His children grow up, to bring them to a place of maturity. Sometimes, as, a, as our Heavenly Father, He has to put us in, in, in time out. Some people call it jail, prison. Some people call it MSP. But do you see that as an act of grace on the part of God to save you from yourself? Because once you make that connection, once you see that discipline is for your good, that those times of time out aren't meant to do you harm, but meant to bring the best out in you, suddenly when you, when you make the connection between God's grace and God's discipline, whoo, suddenly, hey, this isn't so bad after all. Lord, let me learn from you what you want me to learn. Let me grow. Let me become what you want me to be. Even if it takes me in this time of, some of us right now are walking through a wilderness time. We're in a place we never thought we would be. It has nothing to do with legal problems. It has everything to do with where we're at emotionally or relationally. We find ourselves in a place where you don't feel anything. You feel numb. You're Anybody there? Guess what? You know what God's doing in your life? It's, it's a time of discipline, y'all. I've been there myself, so I'm speaking from experience. I used to sit in church. Man, I'm going, I hope I get, y'all with me? I, I don't want to lose you. I was at the top of my game as a youth pastor, thriving youth ministry. I was serving as an elected district official with the state of Alabama, uh, the symbols of God of Alabama. As a, as a leader, everybody was looking to me as being, you know, the, the youth guy. But I would sit in church services like this and not feel a thing. It's like everybody else is having a great time in Jesus, and I'm just sitting there dead to everything. I'd go through the motions a little bit, you know, throwing my hand up every once in a while, but nothing inside, man. It was a wilderness time. Probably went on for 18 months or more. Looking back on it now, I understand why. When God brought me out of that wilderness time, I had made up my mind, I'm never going back there again. I'm never going to let myself get so burned out, emotionally numb, spiritually, I'm never doing that again. It created in me, it stirred up in me a hunger to know God more. I found myself, I found myself as I began to work my way out of this wilderness time, putting my time with God, in a far higher place of priority than I used to have it because he was stirring up in me a hunger for God. I wanted to know who you are. What are you calling me to be? God, teach me, show me. I don't want to stay here anymore. And I don't, that may be where you're at right now. You're going through a wilderness time, and what God is trying to do, he's trying to make you thirsty for him, thirsty for his righteousness. He's trying to create, stir up in you a hunger, a hunger that will drive you out of that place of, uh, in the wilderness, that dry, that dry spot you're in. To find that he is the living water that quenches that thirst. 
So if you find yourself there, that's not a bad thing. That's what I'm trying to say. Finding yourself in times like that's not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, that may be the best thing. It is the best thing because God's doing it. It's the best thing for you right now. Have you realized this by now? God doesn't make mistakes. Even when it seems like he's put you in a really painful place, that painful place is going to turn out to be a testimony. It's going to turn out to be a message that you carry to other people. That's the way God works. For all things work together for good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. All things. I am on rabbit trails. So, this training process that we're in, oh, man, it can get kind of tough sometimes. But you've got to see that God's in it. God's in it. Hebrews 12, 10, 11 says, God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. <laughs> for the moment... It says, all discipline seems painful. I used to hate it when my mom would say, son, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. No, it doesn't. It can. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So if you feel right now like the circumstances of your life are stretching you beyond what you can bear, it may well be that the grace of God is simply training you. Is it hard? Yes. Is it painful? Yes. No discipline is pleasant at the time. Nobody likes to get those three little licks on the back like I used to get with a belt. I, I hated it. But I also understood my father loved me. And he was trying to instill in me a sense of obedience and respect. And that's what we have to keep in mind. Times of discipline. It's for my good. God's doing this so that he can bring out the very best in me. So I challenge you, right, today, don't resist the training of grace. Don't resist it. Some of you are fighting against it, and that's the problem. You're going to find it much easier in your walk with the Lord if you cooperate with him rather than resist him. Can I get an amen? Learn. Grow, mature, embrace the grace. Embrace the training in grace. So how do you embrace it? Man, I'm glad you asked me because Titus gives us some clues here. Real quick, I am going to finish this message, but it's going to be really, really quick. There are two things that you can do to embrace this training process that grace is working in you. Now, anyone who has been to a gym or worked with a coach, knows that you can't just show up for training. You can't just watch the coach do all the work and think somehow you're going to be the one to benefit from it. That doesn't work, does it? You've got to actively participate in the training if you're going to be changed by it. And the first thing you've got to do is you've got to deny yourself. Deny yourself. Titus 2.12 says, Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Deny yourself. Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What that means is to consciously, deliberately, willfully turn away from sinful habits, turn away from godless living, and stop going through life like the rest of the world, chasing the things the world wants. Turn away from all that. Turn away from all that. 
Deny yourself. Think of it this way. No one trains for a marathon without learning what it means to deny yourself. Has anyone here ever trained for a race? Oh, Lord. You guys are on keto diets, but you won't train for a race. (laughs) Brian, can you turn that? Thank you. I'm burning up up here. If you've ever trained for a race or trained to be a part of a team, a football team, anybody? Thank you. A couple of us. We just got no athletes in the room? Soccer, right? Soccer. Soccer? <laughs> Brittany, you were like a really good athlete back I heard something. What did you play? Soccer? So when you began to take it upon yourself to become the best soccer player you could be or the best volleyball player you could be or the best football player you could be, were there certain things you couldn't do anymore? Like, yeah, you had to be a practice instead, right? Had to stop eating certain foods. I, I, we fed the Montevallo High School as a church, fed them just the other day, uh, uh, the basketball team, just before their game. And one thing they told me, don't bring them anything with sugar in it. We don't want the players to have any sugar before the game. Why? Because they're a basketball team. And obviously, the coach doesn't want those basketball players to eat sugar before a game. Okay, if that's what the coach wants, well, I'm not going to do it. And if, if I had shown up there with soft drinks, Cokes, Dr. Peppers, Mountain Dews, whatever, if I'd shown up there with soft drinks full of sugar and placed them on the table in front of that basketball team, how many of those players would have picked one of those bottles up? How many, you think? In front of the coach. Oh, that's the key, isn't it? In front of the coach. If the coach had turned his back and left the room, they may have. Oh, Lord, that's an indictment of us as followers of Christ, right? Is God's eye always on you? Yes, it is. You think you're hiding from the coach? No, he knows what's going on. <laughs> I'm rambling here. Let me get back to it. When you're, when you're tra- training to run a marathon, there are certain things you can't do anymore. You just can't. You have to renounce those things. Turn your back on them. Give them up. Guess what? Grace demands the same thing from you. If you're going to embrace grace, you're just going to have to turn your back on some things that used to come very naturally to you. Have you already noticed grace has done that in your life? There are certain behaviors that you just simply can't do anymore. They may even be legal, but you still can't do that anymore because you know it's taking you out from the training that grace is instilling in you. So you have to learn to deny yourself if you're going to embrace the training by grace. You have to make a conscious effort to turn away from those things which are going to be hurtful and unhealthy and destructive. Sometimes, listen to me, you have to even say no to things which might even seem good in order to choose what's best. I think good, what's the saying, Chris? Good is the enemy of great. The difference between training for a marathon, though, and training in grace is this. You train for a few months for a marathon, you run, then it's done. You go right back to what you were doing. Guess what? That's not what happens when you're training in grace. When you're training in grace, it's for your whole life. It's for your whole life until your life's race is run and you're done. Until then, you're always in training, always in training, always in training. Here's where some of us make mistakes in our recovery. We think just because we're able to leave the alcohol and the drugs behind, we've got it made. (laughs) 
That's right where the devil wants you, man. He wants you to think, you got it now. No, 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 no. The training has just begun. That was the easy part. I'm really rambling. Deny yourself. Jesus said this himself, Luke 9, 23. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That, what, that, what Jesus is saying is very clear. Every single day of our lives, we renounce ungodliness. We renounce worldly passions. We say no to every practice or pattern of life that will get in the way of following Christ Jesus. That's how grace can have its way in our lives. Is that easy? Heck no. I don't think training's ever easy but it's necessary. To be trained by grace, it begins when we deny ourselves. The second thing that we have to do, and this is, this is what helps frame our attitudes and make sure that you know, our, our whys are being answered, we have to learn to wait expectantly. We have to learn to wait expectantly. Verse 13 says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As grace trains us, as we're giving these things up, as we're turning away from those destructive and unhealthy habits, as we're saying no to good things so that we can have the best things later, we have to, we have to live with the constant expectation that Christ Jesus is coming again. Why? Because our attitude will affect our actions. Our Think about Y2K. If you were in the church during Y2K, suddenly everybody began to think of the end of the world and Christ coming back. And they began to go to think about 9-11 when it happened. When people began to think about worldwide conflict breaking out. And maybe this is, this is a sign that Jesus Christ is coming back. I tell you, right after 9-11, our churches were full. The behaviors of people changed. They started talking about the Lord all the time. Somebody said, everything's changed now. America's going to experience revival. And I said, no, give it six months. Give it six months. We'll be right back where we were. Because we don't understand the necessity of staying in training. Wait expectantly. Our attitudes influence our actions, and an attitude of waiting expectantly for Christ's return helps us in two ways with our attitude. First, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to an end here, guys, I promise. And then we're going to have communion. So, John, get ready to help me with that. First, wait, learning, waiting expectantly for the return of Christ, it keeps this self-denial and the discipline of training and grace in its proper perspective. We see it for what it is. It reminds us that this training we're now in is positioning us for something far greater later. Why did you train so hard as an athlete? Because you wanted to experience the thrill of the win. Why do you train so hard in grace as a follower of Christ? Because when he comes back, you want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's a win. Look, it, when, when, we, when we have a constant expectation, when we wait expectantly, realizing that today Christ could, could return, it sets us up to gain something far greater than anything we may now be giving up. It's, it's setting us up to experience something far more glorious than any painful discipline we're now going through. And that's exactly what 2 Corinthians 4.17 says when it says, For this light, 
momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, when you're having to let some things go, it's always good to have in mind there's going to be a reward for it later. It's going to be great then. Right now, painful. Then, awesome! And frankly, too many of us think... C.S. Lewis talked about us not understanding the joy that lies ahead of us. He said, we're too, we're too busy contenting ourselves with dirt when there's glory ahead of us. Somebody said this way, we're playing marbles with diamonds, man. You know, we don't know what we got in our hands. Something far better than we could ever imagine, and yet we're sitting here playing in the dust when God wants to take us to Disney World, so to speak. A divine Disney World, if you will. <laughs> you know? Never be content with what this world has to offer you. Anything you give up here, trust me. Trust me. The payment for it later is beyond amazing. So an attitude of waiting expectantly for Christ helps keep all the training here in proper perspective. And secondly, an attitude of waiting for Christ's return helps us press forward. It helps us press forward in spite of any price we're having to pay or any hardships we're having to face. And that's why Paul could write from a prison cell and say in Philippians 3.14, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Paul was like a bridegroom waiting on his bride. He was oblivious to the surroundings, oblivious to his circumstances. It didn't matter to Paul that he was in chains. It didn't matter to Paul that he was sitting in a prison cell wondering if this day would be his last day. He was like a bridegroom that was waiting for the bride. Paul couldn't take his mind off the object of his desire, Christ Jesus. Our problem is that we have made the object of our desire this world. And that's why we find ourselves drifting off, going back. Listen, may the object of your desire be Christ Jesus. May his face be the face that motivates you to get up in the morning, not the face of your boss who's holding a paycheck in his hand. It was this attitude of expected waiting that kept Paul pressing on in spite of his circumstances. It was this, this expectant waiting that kept Paul's light shining. How easy it would have been for Paul to put the pen down and say, it's done, can't write anymore, I'm done. No, 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 no. As long as there was breath in his body, Paul's light was going to shine. He was going to keep on praying. He was going to keep on preaching. He was going to keep on teaching. He was going to keep on encouraging. Because he was waiting for Christ to come. All right. Let's, uh, let's go to communion, y'all. That was an awkward transition. The grace of God. Going back to verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. I've tried to answer as best. I really believe that this is the best definition of grace in the New Testament. I really believe it's placed here in the heart of this little book for that very reason. To remind Titus, 
This is what it's all about. This is what God is trying to do. This is why Jesus came and died on the cross. This is what we're all about, Titus. It's about grace. Make sure that everything you do is driven, motivated by grace. This grace that's defined by the self-giving of Christ Jesus. This grace that's defined for its, by its power and its purifying effect. And its possessive nature and its permanence. Make sure, Titus, that you get across to the people. It's this grace that trains them. It will not leave them the same. Make sure that grace is at the heart of everything you do. And I'm telling you, as best we can, Christian Life Fellowship is going to focus on this definition of grace. We're not, we're not going to let anyone settle for that cheap grace that's being sold out in the marketplace. The grace that God shows you and has given you and continues to give you is costly. It costs Him everything. Don't dare trod over it on, with your feet saying it doesn't really matter. I'll do what I want with it. No, 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 no. His grace is demanding. His grace intends to train you, change you, take you from where you were to where God wants you to be. He will have His way in your life. Don't settle for that cheap grace that's out there. Make sure you know what grace is all about. My question for you today is this. So many of you raised your hand saying you know what it felt like the moment Christ showed up in your life. You experienced the power of it. You experienced the change that it began to, to work in your life. Well, my question for you today is this. Does, does grace, like we've talked about today, still define your life? Does that kind of grace still define your life? Or have you found yourself cheapening its definition? Have you found yourself denying grace parts of your life because you're not ready to yield them to him, to it? Is your life defined by this kind of grace? How would you know if it is, how would you know if your life is still being defined by this grace? Because God's grace is at work or it's not at work. It's either training you or it's not. Do you hear what I'm saying? Are you still experiencing its life-changing effect in your life? Is it still transforming you? Is it still working in you? Are you still letting his grace have its way in your life? Because it's His grace that's going to make you the kind of person where His light can shine. It's His grace that's going to do all the forming and the transforming and the conforming to Christ's image. It's His grace at work in your life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning for just a moment. We're about to go into communion. Oh, man. So Bill and Steve and Richard, if you're in the room, Ed, if you're in the room, I don't know. Brian. Who I was all over the place today. But there's not a bigger topic in the Word of God than grace. There's not a more misunderstood topic than grace.
I have a feeling that there are people in this room that uh, have not yet experienced the grace of God. They've heard about it. But they haven't really experienced it for themselves. And my prayer for you this morning is that the Holy Spirit would begin to reveal Christ Jesus to you. It is a work of the Spirit to reveal the grace of God demonstrated in Christ Jesus. <laughs> he is the face of grace. Some of you are in this room and you don't think God even knows your name. And I'm telling you, yes, He does. It's engraved on the palm of His hand. He knows you. He's the one who created you. He loves you with an everlasting love. He sent Jesus, His Son, to die on the cross for you to pay the penalty for your sin so that you could experience freedom and salvation in His name. God knows exactly who you are, exactly what you've done, exactly what you've been through. He knows everything about you. His grace is available to you, just like it's been made available to me and to everyone else in this room. Some of you are in this room and you've experienced Christ Jesus. You've, you've asked Him into your heart. You've said the prayer. You may have signed the card. may have joined a church. But that's as far as training and grace went for you. You kind of stopped there because you didn't fully understand that grace intends to take you over. It intends to transform you inside out. Grace isn't done with you yet. You haven't taken your last breath here yet. Until then, grace intends to change you. To mold you. To shape you. as we gather around this table today. We're told to do this in remembrance of Christ Jesus. We went to the cross, suffered the penalty for our sin. His body was broken. Blood was shed for our redemption, for our healing. So we're told to remember what Christ did for us then. We're also told to remember what Christ is doing for us today. As we share this little cracker and this little cup of juice together, we're reminded that His grace is still effective. It's still effectual. It's still sufficient. It's enough. It's enough to carry us through whatever difficulty we're going, we're in, whatever hardship we're facing whatever struggle we have, His grace is more than enough to carry us through. It's, His grace is sustaining us through this life. But the Bible also tells us that we're to stop and remember what He did for us in the past, what He's doing for us today. We're also told to remind each other as we share this bread and cup together, that He's coming again. We're to do this until He comes.
He's coming again. He's coming again. Just as surely as He came the first time as a baby born in a manger, giving Himself for us on a cross, rising again on the third day, ascending to the Father, as surely as all that took place 2,000 years ago, you can bet your bottom dollar He's going to show up again, just like He said. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you letting grace have its way in your life as you wait for His return? Are you still living that life of surrender that has renounced ungodliness and worldly passions? Is grace still transforming you day by day into the glorious image of Christ? Are you permitting the grace of God to change you, to make you the light that He's called you to be with your good works bringing glory to God? We're also told that as we share this time together, that we're to examine ourselves. Let the Holy Spirit examine you today. See if there's anything that grace would change in your life. Is there anything that grace needs to get hold of to transform, to change?